how does technology impact our everyday lives, create efficiencies, create opportunities, and enable people to have easier experiences because technology takes away and what it's intended to do is make everything a little bit easier so that we can focus our brains and our lives on the more important things. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Sherelle Dorsey, founder and CEO of The Plug, a digital news platform that covers Black leaders, thinkers, and entrepreneurs. Sherelle recently published her book, Upper Hand, The Future of Work for the Rest of Us, which blends a personal story with how to embrace Black and Brown communities in the future of tech. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Sherelle, welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. It is so great to have you on the program. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Samantha. Sherelle, you've had such an interesting career as an entrepreneur, a journalist, and really as somebody who's been in the technology industry for a really long time. Take us back to your earliest exposure to the tech industry. What was that like? So my journey into tech really started with my grandfather forcing me and my cousin after school every day to be on Mavis Beacon. I don't know if you remember the Mavis Beacon typing, but my grandfather religiously made us do at least an hour of Mavis Beacon each day. And that's really significant because my grandfather also purchased our first computers in like 95, 96. And so that opened an entire world of what was available. So that was sort of my early foray into tech. And I was fortunate in high school to be part of a program called the Technology Access Foundation, which taught kids of color in the inner city about technology, computers, programming languages, and helped prepare us for internships. So tell me about that program. Why was that valuable to you? And and how do you think it brings children of color into technology at an early age? It was such an intentional program. Trish Malines Zico founded the program in the early to mid-90s following her career as a software engineer at Microsoft. She was the only woman, the only Black woman on her team. So when she left Microsoft, she really wanted to start creating a space for kids of color to learn and enter tech so that she would not be the only one in the future. She really predicted about 25 years ago that the diversity gap was going to be a problem. So turning a storefront in the inner city in Seattle's central district was really key to her helping to onboard kids into tech. And the technical teens internship program, which I entered in, I think I was probably maybe the second or third cohort of that group where it was more than just learning things like C-sharp, active server pages, network administration, a lot of programming languages that are not necessarily (laughs) in vogue today, but were very critical at that time. So teaching us after school and then also wrapping that with things like SAT prep, college essay writing, interviewing skills, and that lending us to opportunities to interview at places. So at Microsoft, I got a chance to interview and spend all four summers on different teams. And those were paid internships. So that was money I was able to put away for college or to kind of help with like buying school clothes. I grew up in a single parent household. And there were a lot of folks that I got to go through this program with who are today, we still stay connected. And they are senior software leaders at Netflix and Expedia and Google and all of these environments. And that trajectory was so critical to us understanding, you know, our place in technology. It was not something that was foreign. We just assumed
assume that we belong here as well. And I didn't realize, of course, at the time, how significant that experience was because my friends were working retail jobs, which most teenagers do. And that was such a phenomenal thing that I look back at that and I just realized like, wow, not everyone had that dynamic of an experience that really set them up for success. So I'm very fortunate for that experience. That's so powerful, you know, for you and for others in that program and remarkable at such a young age to be in a giant company like Microsoft, you know, really learning just so young. Tell us about some of your other jobs. You know, you've worked at Uber, you've worked at Google as marketing managers. Tell us about that transition from technology into marketing, why you liked those different functions and what you did for the companies. Absolutely. So I took a very non-conventional route into technology. When it was time to go to college, I really wanted to express this side of entrepreneurship. You know, I loved working at Microsoft, helping to build products, anything that like I couldn't break where teams would let me kind of jump into. But going to school for me, I realized I love the idea of being in charge. I think most late teens, early 20 somethings, like we just have this vision of you get to the boardroom very quickly and that's just not <laughs> the actual trajectory. So I actually went to the Fashion Institute of Technology, which was definitely a curveball for my family who automatically assumed that I was going to study computer science. But I got got to study the business of marketing within the fashion world, which is a multi-billion dollar industry and really encompasses so much technology from textile selection and forecasting to the building of an e-commerce business and brand. And in you know, 2005 to, to 2010, during the time I was in school, there was so much experimenting with social media. There was so much experimenting with how we were shopping and purchasing online. And that fascinated me. So getting into the Ubers and the Google Fiber, I think what I was really attracted to was the way in which technology was changing society fundamentally, whether it was through transportation or through very, very high-speed internet access and the way that we connect to the internet. And so those experiences overall were really, I think, a continuum of understanding how society engages with technology versus just building products that are cool and interesting and hard to build and fascinating and kind of geeking out, and more so of how does technology impact our everyday lives, create efficiencies, create opportunities, and enable people to have easier experiences because technology takes away and what it's intended to do is make everything a little bit easier so that we can focus our brains and our lives on the more important things. That is the goal, always. I love the fact that, as you said, you were interested always in doing something for yourself, and now you are an entrepreneur, and you've launched a company called The Plug. Tell us about The Plug, and specifically, how did you develop the idea for it, and then come to that moment where you decided to pull the trigger? So, Sam, I was raised in an environment where, again, as I mentioned, my grandfather was a technophile. And I got to learn from engineers from all walks of life. And so I was very confused as I would keep up on industry literature and read about these great profiles of, you know, the Gates and the Musks and the Zuckerbergs. I did not see the folks that I was interacting with and engaging with on a daily basis profiled or quoted. And the journalism to me just felt very one-sided. It did not identify genius looking like, sounding like, feeling like, or coming from communities that looked like mine. But those were the people that I was inspired by. And I thought, well, this is so limiting because we're not getting a different school of thought 
from other folks who are like in day-to-day communities that understand how the world actually functions and works when you are in a different income bracket, whether you take the bus to work or you take a car to work. Those are different life experiences that are not being covered in a robust way and named as innovation when it comes out of the mouth of someone else. And so the plug for me was really a sort of ode to genius coming from anywhere. And I started it really as a labor of love. So I would get up before heading to my job at Uber or at Google Fiber, pulling together and curating, like, here's who I'm learning about. Here are folks who I find really fascinating, you know, sharing some personal anecdotes, but mostly starting to cover and even submit pieces to places like Fast Company, The Root, Black Enterprise, Next City, and just trying to show the robustness of communities of innovation, coming up with really cool ideas to solve specific challenges that they were facing that were being left out of this mainstream sort of noisy, here are kind of all the great, you know, white guys doing brilliant things. And it's like, okay, fine. Like, sure. Robots are, you know, space, what have you. Like, here's a guy who's like creating an app to exchange like vegetables and fruits with neighbors on a more like human level. The plug really came out from that, wanting to share that experience. It was very accidental, you know, if I'm honest. It was very accidental to create an entire company. And as the newsletter grew and the popularity grew and the advertisers reached out, I realized I was onto something. And my time at Uber, my time at Google Fiber helped me to get much more savvy in this world of data-driven decision-making. And I realized especially after reading a lot of media bios, I said, wow, like data is really fascinating. And what I found was as I was trying to research for different articles, I didn't find a lot of research specific to diverse perspectives in data trends on Black-led startups or Black fund managers or innovation communities that were growing. And so I realized, well, what if I could create a Bloomberg-esque or a Wall Street Journal-esque sort of publication that centered data and insights that's really key to driving what we think technology will be in the future. But it's coming from communities who are taking whatever it is that they have and creating the future. We need to study that. So that's really how the plug really emanated. Hmm. So there's so many places I want to go to. I guess, first of all, does the data exist out there? Data you want to make use of to tell the story? Is it there? And then second, how do you think you've been using that data then in a new way to tell these stories? Yes and no. I think there's a lot of like hidden things in academia. I think there's a lot of amazing researchers who are hard at work, heads down, still looking for funding for some of these ideas. I think we have a lot of information as organizations continue to emerge as they are like creating coding programs, you know, in communities of color or even HBCUs in specific to the patents that they're creating. The data is somewhat dispersed. And so for us, it has been such a task in collecting that data and starting to organize around that. We're seeing so much more organization. Before we had to rely on sort of American survey from the government, like kind of data, things that it's already outdated by the time the report launches. It's like five years, a little bit too late. You know, we're trying to stay on top of the iterative, sharing things like, hey, In 2020 and 2021, we saw over $300 million of corporate money going into Black-led funds run by Black fund managers and emerging funds. Or my first data set that really captured folks' attention was in 2017, I actually built this up for a a grad school-like project, and I started to map out 
all the Black-led co-working spaces. Co-working spaces, if you remember, were like exploding. You had the WeWorks, like opening up a place like a Starbucks on every corner kind of deal. And I was like, well, that's really cool. But like Black-owned co-working spaces, like I'm seeing these pop up as well. And what does this mean for communities? So, you know, yes and no. It's still very early, but it's an exciting time because we can start hyper-focusing on collecting this information. And of course, not just for Black intelligence, but across the board, what's happening in Latinx communities as those communities are emerging? What's happening across the board as we start to break down various groups and communities? I'm also really fascinated by how you built your newsletter. So content is queen, as we like to say. You obviously have to start with great stories. That's the foundation. But how did you find your audience? And how did the audience for the newsletter really start to pick up? Tell us about the people you sent it to, the networks you built, and how you sort of caught that initial demand. I built my audience through... First, the publications I was writing and featured in. So as I mentioned, I I remember reaching out to Darren Sands at Black Enterprise. Back in the day when you actually picked up the phone, you called an editor to let you pitch them. And he said yes. And so I did my first few pieces there and really built up confidence. And I started attending these conferences and talking to Black founders and, and other like ecosystem leaders and just pitching these ideas. And anytime someone said yes to me, I just continued that ballpark. And I built up this reputation for being the tech journalist that was covering Black and Brown startups. So by the time I started to develop my concept for the plug, I had sort of an audience that had already been, I'd been in touch with, even just personally. I mean, from sitting down and having coffee to engaging with them on Twitter kind of in the early days. And so it was fairly easy to sort of get my first 500 subscribers and slowly but surely cultivate relationship with that audience and asking them, hey, send this to a friend. Again, I started this accidentally. It was a $10 domain name in a MailChimp account for free. And I just said, you know what? It's just about being consistent. It's about serving my audience well. And beyond that, you know, it was every subscriber truly earned through this sense of trust and through this sense of representative storytelling and care and adoration, and sometimes, you know, harsh honesty, really sharing that, hey, maybe this company isn't as exciting as I thought it was going to be. Like, here are kind of the flaws. I don't know if they'll last. And being honest in that realm as well. And then as my profile started to rise again, there was just ongoing opportunity to share as more technology-based reporters or publications started to see the work. And, you know, again, that kind of net effect of being featured here or being able to speak or being asked to host or MC events related to tech of some sort. And that was very new, but getting my name and my profile out there really helped to grow that trust and grow that subscribership. I love that. You know, your focus, your expertise, it really built on a virtual cycle for you, it sounds like, and you were able to really pull through that exposure in so many different channels. Let's also talk about your newest venture, which is author, not only in the blog and on the plug, but also in a book, in a book format. So you recently released a book called Upper Hand, The Future of Work for the Rest of Us. And I want you to tell us about the book. I really love how you describe it as a love letter to your your grandfather. And I'm glad you started by telling us about him and the influence he had on you. So tell us why you wrote the book and how he influenced you there. So going back into this research for my book, 
it was so evident that my grandfather's story, as I spent lots of time just recording him and asking him more about his life and into granted, my grandfather's 87 years old, originally from Birmingham, Alabama. And so as a black man, you know, in this country, there are all these other sort of histories that coincide with his journey and the privileges that are afforded to me because of just for the nature of when I was born. And I wanted to really excavate who he was and what he was thinking to like leave, (laughs) just leave Detroit and and start a whole new life in, in this kind of foreign territory where there weren't a lot of folks that looked like him, but he was willing to take that risk. And again, you know, as I had looked at the history of Seattle, particularly the experience of Black and Brown communities, particularly of the Central District where I was trained in technology, and then to sort of like backtrack just the last few years to see the levels of evolution that the city has gone through, that the Central District that was once relegated only to ethnic minorities by nature of laws that really restricted any mortgages being purchased outside of those areas And now how it has completely gentrified those communities were never onboarded into the future that the city became. I wanted to illustrate my experience along with just the change of Seattle and how I watched that changeover. I wanted to illustrate how that was replicated across the country and unfortunately left behind so many people in its pathway as these cities evolved. And so just the title alone was really about how do we move from a place of every conversation is about either exclusion or disparity or disenfranchisement? How do we put back the idea of having an upper hand, taking charge of our own narratives and getting access to the information that can help us make decisions about accessing internships, accessing opportunities like certification programs and tech training. I even put information in here about the digital divide in which companies are really helping to provide new levels of access just to the internet on a basic level. So I wanted to change and turn around the conversation that, yep, here's what's happened, but now we can move forward with the actual information we need to start onboarding into the future of work. I love how you take such a personal approach to this story and then look at the macro environments in the country. What were the things that, I guess, surprised you most when you were doing research, whether that was your family history or you know just societal situations? It was definitely having to sit and speak with my grandfather. My grandfather is not a man of many words, but once you get him to talking, again, he's 87 years old and he remembered that he made $2.38 an hour in 1959 at Boney. Unbelievable. I was floored. I mean, I just kind of kept the recorder going and listened to him. It was also fascinating to learn about the corporate influence particularly finding out about Boeing hiring their first Black employee was a stenographer named Florence. But this was 20 years prior to my grandfather's arrival. And this was major because there weren't many corporate companies that were hiring Black workers. And so like we can can talk about the race issue all day, right? But the fact of the matter is that that unlocked and enabled an opportunity for the first time in America, but it unlocked for the first time for Black Americans to get access to higher paying jobs, which then helped to enable opportunities for home ownership. And so finding out that history of a corporate company in the city that I grew up in, and the fact that that history was tied to my grandfather, 
who worked there for about eight years before he moved to King TV and then retired from King TV. But I felt so connected, like directly connected by policies and changes in leadership as well that completely changed the trajectory of the lives of so many folks of color. And then to have your own experiences with Microsoft, today's Seattle corporate leader, is really just so interesting. What do you hope people who read the book take away from it? You know, what can individuals do, no matter where they live and no matter where they work, you know, to provide these kinds of opportunities to others? I love that question so much because though I wrote this, you know, for communities, for families, to spark conversations around navigation, even leaders of all sorts can really take something out of this around, now how do we help to create opportunity? And I think that that's really the gist and the takeaway from this book. It is, do we have an internship program? Have we really reached into communities that are typically out of our sphere of influence to ensure that we are getting eager students and eager folks to hop into this? You know, we think a lot about mentorship And how can we start to mentor that next generation, especially when I think of Gen Z in the middle of this pandemic and graduate? I mean, I graduated in a recession and like you have an entire generation who has graduated into a pandemic that fundamentally changes things. So where do we place the onus on ourselves? You know, and that's really one of the questions I ask in the book of the companies that 20, 25 years ago really could have said, listen, we're having great successes. We're going to need X amount of workers. How do we go to our own backyards? You know, how do we go across the street and just say, we want to make sure that we are offering opportunity, training programs, investing in education in our own backyard to ensure that communities get to take part in the successes that we're having. And what do you think about trying to instill in children love for technology or other STEM issues, whether they can code or not? You know, what is it that we should all do to foster that interest and make sure that they understand that there's so many paths possible if you invest in STEM? Yes, I think that's always great exposure. I think about my nephew has an Instagram now. He just turned five and he's the black science kid and he does experiments with his mom. And I love that everything in the world becomes an opportunity for engagement and learning. And I think we have to keep approaching ideas around exposure from that same sort of like childlike interest right? Like what can technology do to help create opportunity or create, again, something something of ease or something exciting? And I think approaching it from that way, that interdependence, and I speak about this in the book as well, that interdependence versus dependence on technology. How does this help? How do we create and audit our lives and really get excited about the world around us and also the ways in which it helps us to even be better citizens and residents to our neighbors. I have a neighbor, Bob, who is is 70 years young, and he often takes out my trash cans because I forget on Tuesday sometimes. He takes them out and I pick them back up and bring them back. I am a good neighbor. (laughs) I just want to put that on the record. But I think about the ways in which, you know, during a big snowstorm, I can order groceries or I can at least find the things that we may need in our community ensure the efficiency of either pickup or helping to understand neighborhood watch or or whatever it is. So there's different ways that we can engage with it that are also helping us to be much more responsible in our communities. Let me ask you for the plug going forward, as you think about 2022 and so many areas of innovation in the economy, what are the stories that you want to pursue? What are the stories about Black innovation that you want to tell? 
we are looking at incredible Black tech leaders and fund managers that are investing in fintech companies that are really taking part in this Web3 crypto space as well. We're seeing founders that are also working on things like precision medicine, really working towards getting more ethnic minorities into things like clinical trials so that there's more data in which to build medicine and medical breakthroughs from. We're also looking across the board at education technology. We've had millions of kids who had to have all of their learning done online. How do we make that more efficient and effective? And giving parents an opportunity to expand their kids' experiences, their educational experiences. So we're looking forward to deep diving into these very critical areas and spaces as our world has fundamentally changed due to the pandemic. I really look forward to reading these stories. I agree with you, you know, as you said earlier, when we have new sectors that are still dominated by just one type of group, whether that's crypto, Web3, the metaverse, I really want to make sure more women and people of color are taking the rightful places there with innovation and with the growth and the wealth, frankly, that's going to be created in these spaces. So thank you for telling those stories. Absolutely. Thank you. I have an amazing team of incredible journalists. We have freelancers and just nerdy people who are genuinely curious about the world. And I'll be honest with you. I love this space. I love building this company. And it's not just because I just felt like I wanted to, you know, go through the highs and lows of entrepreneurship. Truly, it was about ongoing curiosity about people, about society and how technology is influencing that. And so I feel every single day and even in writing this book, I just get to nerd out and ask people a bunch of annoying questions and then share with the world what I've learned. And I get to do that over and over again every single day. I love that. You're a lifelong student and you found a career that actually you know, makes the most of your passions. So tell us as we wrap up, what does success look like for you in the near term? So the next one to two years, and then maybe over a medium term, you know, five years out. You know, the immediate term is that we are really shaping the plug to be the intelligent source for an inclusive business future, that every MBA program, every financial analyst Every person that's making a choice about the future taps the plug for insights that they can't find elsewhere and can look at the case studies, the business case studies, the research, the reports that, again, are governed and include in, you know, black and brown communities and innovators across the diaspora or across the globe and really factor that into the conversation in a way that has not been done before. And personally, you know, I have been a nomad for most of my life. So following leaving Seattle at 18, I've lived in New York. I've lived in Bridgeport, Connecticut, Charlotte, Miami, now Atlanta. I'm looking forward to staying put and setting up my, what I call my imagination museum in my own backyard and tinkering. So that is my long-term goal, quite frankly. You have to have the personal goals alongside the professional ones. And we certainly hope you have roots where you want them and that everything grows from there. It's been so nice to speak with you and to hear about the plug and all of your efforts to really bring diverse voices to the table. Thank you so much. We really look forward to reading more and enjoying your book and the plug. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Sherelle Dorsey. It was wonderful to learn about her family's journey, the impact of technology on society, and how she's amplifying more diverse voices in technology and innovation. As we celebrate Black History Month, it is so exciting to see the stories of Black innovators who are making a real impact. 
The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank N.A., member FDIC.